welcome to the Psych and Business Podcast, where we highlight the integration of psychology and psychological principles into the world of business and organizations. I'm your host, Dr. Ernest Wade. I have another great guest for you today. He's a psychologist, a consultant, and an executive coach who specializes in matters related to workplace behavior. His name is Dr. Ed Sherman. Dr. Sherman has 40 years of experience in public safety, having served as a law enforcement officer, a firefighter, and a paramedic. He has performed workplace violence threat assessments for more than 25 years and was the primary violence threat assessor for the County of San Diego, California, and coordinated risk management activities related to maintaining a safe and secure workplace for over 17,000 employees at 700 work sites. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ernest. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here to join you. Ed, I'm really very interested in your, your experiences here, but I always want to f- first start off by learning a little bit more about you. So let's tell us about your story. How did you end up being a, a, fi- a firefighter, a paramedic, a police officer, and a psychologist? And how did you end up where you are? Well, thank you, Dr. Wade, for asking these great questions. And um, I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. It's an interesting journey and, and, and a little different path than some people have taken to get to uh, their professional goals. But uh, it, it, what's interesting about this is the public sector work and the behavioral science interest mm-hmm. uh, exists parallel for much of my life. And so early on, I had uh, an interest in psychology, and I knew that I always wanted to pursue that educationally. But I had a strong influence in my life, and that strong influence was my father. And as it happens, my father was a firefighter Hmm. and a law enforcement officer. So I was immersed in the environment. I I like to say sometimes, almost quite literally, that I grew up in a firehouse in the sense that (laughs) I went there a lot because that's where my father was. And so, um, you know, I was used to that environment. I was familiar with uh, uh, the lingo, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and the things that they did. So it was very easy for me when I became uh, an adult to transition into that first as a volunteer and then as a paid full-time professional doing those things. And so, um, but my interest in psychology never waned. uh, And there's parts of my public safety career where that became applicable even before I sort of formalized my education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting because you're you're doing a number of different jobs there, right? I mean, you're you're a firefighter, you're a police officer, paramedic. So you have to put on those different hats. Uh, how did psychology and the training in psychology help you to do that? So probably first and foremost, um, the recognition that although um, in whatever occupation or role a person is serving. Mm-hmm. If you're working with people, certainly, as in the case of a first responder, and in case of many times a crisis that you're confronting and dealing with and trying to address, that even though there are skills that are important to help sort of uh, extricate the person from that difficult situation or do something to make it better or resolve the situation, if possible, at the center of it is still a human being. Mm -hmm. One or, more, one or more human beings who are experiencing something in their life, 
which for most people, if we need to call for first responders, is usually something rather traumatic yeah. that has happened to us or somebody around us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so um, I always kept that in mind in the work that I did and tried to use those principles um, of understanding, being empathetic with people, trying to relate, and importantly, communicating that with them, because I found that that, that in and of itself helped tremendously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you're saying there in terms of recognizing that we are all people first, right? And when you're when you're calling paramedics or the first responders, it's probably for something traumatic. So really being aware of th that human behavior is going to come into play even more so there. So really important to understand that. Now, I know you've done a lot of work with uh, safe and secure work environments, and I really, I'm really tuning into that. Uh, you mentioned in the in the beginning there that you really work with with organizations to help them with workplace behavior. I think that's a distinction that really needs to be clarified. Why is that different than just regular behavior? Well, in every workplace, there are people who come and gather to perform certain functions. And, um, and that literally could be either in person in the traditional sense or virtually in the, in, in the remote world mm -hmm. uh, that, that many people work. But in either case, people come together um, in, in smaller, larger numbers to try to work together. But we all, of course, bring with us mm -hmm everything that um, is uh, a part of who we are, of our experiences, mm -hmm. of our mm -hmm. expectations, of our interpersonal skills, of our problems, of our concerns, and all of those things exist not in a void, mm -hmm. but in fact, very much present and, and part of the dynamic of working with other people. Mm -hmm. And so whatever the, the role or duty or occupation or expectation is that the person is performing, um, we recognize that we, people have health problems, they have family problems, they have uh, conflict with other people who they work with. Mm -hmm. And so trying to understand, and in much the same way as I mentioned with uh, public safety, a more holistic viewpoint of what is going on rather than simply saying, uh, for example, a person is underperforming mm -hmm. or a, a person is entering into a lot of conflict with others or whatever the case may be. I believe where psychology tremendously helps is to inform us about what may be happening with the person to understand that first to have the need, the desire mm -hmm. and the effort to understand what's going on and then try to look at it in the context of the situation. Because I believe if we do things in isolation without that, mm -hmm. we're not likely to um, benefit the organization or business and we're not certainly likely to benefit the people mm -hmm. involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying, right? People bring their 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 home experiences to work with them, even though it's a different work environment. And so we need to be aware of that and, and be mindful of that. So it's absolutely important to really keep that in mind and make sure that we're understanding that. Now, Ed, I know you've done a lot of work in the private and the public sector, but I really want to jump into the work that you've done in the public sector because you've done such such great experiences as well as being an employee in the public sector. Tell us, what's it like being a consultant in the public sector? Because sometimes people have different motivations in the public and in the private sector. Tell us about that work. 
So it, it is different. It's similar in some ways and it's different, different in others because um, the public sector for those who have not worked in it or experienced it or are familiar with it may be um, something that is, you know, different to them in terms of a culture, mm-hmm. in terms of style, in terms of motivation, in terms of desire for certain outcomes. Yep. One of the most common questions that I'm asked is, since there isn't, in essence, a, a profit motive per se, mm-hmm. um, in the public sector, as opposed to the private sector, how do you motivate people? What interests people? Why, you know, if there's a situation where there's a problem or an issue or concern, how do you how do you incentivize mm-hmm. them changing that? Because in the private sector, if if a person was not being productive and therefore an organization was not being productive, there would inevitably be consequences yeah. that would sort of fall into place naturally. Mm-hmm. But that is not the case necessarily in public sector, even though they, of course, have budgets that they have to meet and so forth. But what I find is um, one of the key things that um, people share is is that they is their number one their own personal desire to serve and to do a good job. That's why many people enter public safety occupations, mm-hmm. but also to advance their career yeah. and to be able to accomplish more. And, and move up the proverbial ladder if they so choose to do that. And not everybody does. But depending on what someone's goals and desires are, those can be just as strong of a motivator as some sort of financial mm-hmm. motivator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I've worked in the private sector and the public sector. I actually worked in the, the private sector first before I, I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs. And you're absolutely right. The culture and the motivation is completely different there. I mean, I found that you know the, the the motivation in the VA was really trying to serve the veterans uh, to the best of your ability, and that that motivation and that drive was completely different in the, than the public sector, than the private sector. Uh, Ed, can you give us some examples of some of the work that you've done in the in the public sector and how you've used your skills to help them be more successful? So there are three types of services that I primarily provide, and that is coaching consulting Mm -hmm. and training. And so typically I am asked to provide assistance on some type of issue or situation and the origin of it may be different. So for example, where the coaching would come into play is if there's an executive who is for whatever reason manifesting some sort of behavior Mm -hmm. that the leadership feels should be addressed, then I might be called in to work with that individual and help that person succeed. And and first, of course, understand what's going on Mm -hmm. with them and what may be driving their behavior, but then help them try to succeed. Uh, The consulting component could be, for example, uh, a broader group, such as a work group, where I might be brought in and an organization says we have some Uh, some difficulty, some friction, some conflict that's happening between, you know, several people or or the group at large. And we have tried some things. Those have not been successful Mm -hmm. in resolving the issues. And so we would like some assistance and some suggestions about how to do that. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is training. And so training could be something where Somebody says, could you come in and and do leadership training? Could you come in and do training about how to create a mentoring program Mm -hmm. or something along those lines? 
But the interesting thing about it is the common thread in all of these things is there's usually some underlying unresolved issue. So sometimes it may be obvious what that is, meaning that there are identified behaviors, but sometimes it may be more subtle that there is a systemic problem hmm. that because of the either leadership style or because of the culture or because of the expectations. And much of this is oftentimes difficult for those internal to the organization to address. That is the power and the benefit of having a neutral third party, so to speak, be able to come into an organization to assess what is happening in the organization by speaking to the people involved and then to craft some possible solutions that um, may help bring to bear some things to make the situation better. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, I'm interested in, in what you're saying, Ed, because one of the things that I've noticed, just anecdotally from my my limited experience, is that uh, the, the use of coaches and consultants in the public sector seems to be less so than that in the private sector. It's really common in the private sector, but seems to be less so in the public sector. Is that your experience, or do you see that differently? No, absolutely so, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because it's, I think, a really important thing to discuss, and that is, is when I talk to people in the corporate mm -hmm. world, they not only are familiar with executive coaching, or I will just say coaching in general in the workplace, mm -hmm. uh, and have maybe even or oftentimes had a coach or had the assistance of multiple coaches, yeah. but that's very different than the public sector. I find when I talk to public safety leaders, Many of them are either unfamiliar with what the coaching process is and what is involved with it. Mm. And the vast majority, in fact, I would think it's true to say very few of the public sector leaders who I work with have had the opportunity for coaching. And I think it is every bit as powerful and important in public sector as it is in private sector. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that's so much less prevalent in the, in the public sector? Well, I, I, again, I think there's a different dynamic and, and that, first of all, I, I, I think from my conversations with other coaches and consultants, mm -hmm. most of them have, have worked in the private sector. Therefore, they feel comfortable. They feel knowledgeable and familiar with what goes mm -hmm. on and they, they, they can step into those situations and help. But many of them have communicated, um, they're not quite sure exactly how government operates mm -hmm. and therefore they would have sort of a, a steep learning curve to try to understand those dynamics. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, would they be able to help as fully or as quickly as they might desire? And so I think it is because the majority of the people who are coaches or who are in a coaching role come from the private sector, so to speak, and just have ventured less into the public sector. Yeah, you know, that, that makes sense, especially when you're talking about the different culture. I know was as when I was working in the VA, one of the things that we had to be mindful of was political appointees. So every every at least every four years, there'd be a, a new leader in the VA because of political appointment. And so that's something that that really speaks to the different culture that um, that you have in the public sector versus the private sector. And it could be that an executive in the private sector changes and brings a different way of doing business. But you're right, there is, by the nature of um, government, mm -hmm. 
turnover in the sense that people promote, people retire, and that happens in every organization, but it could happen more often because of changes that happen organizationally. And so those things in public or private are always challenges to learn the style of a new leader, to learn to adapt to what that person's expectations are, Mm -hmm. to you know, fulfill those things. And so, yes, I, I certainly uh, have seen where that has happened in, in public organizations quite a bit. Uh, and and it could be difficult for those there trying to identify how to best perform the job when they may have already um, mastered, so to speak, the expectations of one leader and then another leader comes in and, and it's indeed different. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. When when you're trying, when you when you think you know how to do it and a new leader comes in and they want it done differently, there's always going to be an adjustment period. Now, I, I know you do a lot of work with the private sector. Are you, uh, the public sector, are you working mostly with state or local or federal government? All of the above, um, federal, uh, local, state, all of those mm-hmm. um, districts, uh, cities, so pretty much every branch and level of government. Mm. And uh, again, I, I love the diversity of it. I love the diversity of the occupations, yeah. because even though I have a, a significant amount of time spent in in the government service, I have not certainly had exposure to all things that all people have done. So it's a wonderful opportunity to bring ideas to different parts of the public sector Mm -hmm. and to try to integrate those into their operations, their activities. And then there's this wonderful uh, synergy Mm -hmm. between myself and the people in the organization where I'm learning about what they do and then I'm imparting ideas and then we come up with the way that will best mesh because it wouldn't be productive for me to simply put information out there without really understanding what their environment is, what the expectations are, what their roles are, et cetera. Mm. That's such, a, such an interesting uh, dynamic and really an, an interesting group of, of people that, you, that you've worked with there from, you know, from the district level all to the federal. I'm wondering with your experiences, especially with the leaders in these environments, what do you see as different or the same in terms of their, their leadership approach and their leadership priorities? Well, I, I think it's fairly similar in terms of... Uh, I will put it this way. Um, There are people who at any management or leadership position Mm -hmm. are established, I will say, in a certain set of uh, beliefs, a certain philosophy, Mm -hmm. a certain approach, Mm -hmm. which is typically learned from their experiences, like much of what we do is in general. And there are others who are more open to innovations, new ideas, possibilities. And so that's where it's a really interesting conversation when I meet potential clients is is that I try to understand their perspective, their outlook, their philosophy Mm -hmm. to determine if it is a good fit for me to work with Mm -hmm. them. Because um, it's really important that any leader is open to at least discussing the concerns and the problems because it's really quite difficult to um, advance any type of, uh, I'll say, either new agenda or even resolution to an existing problem if, you know, 
the the viewpoint is the reason we do this is because this is the way we've always done it. That does, that does not yeah, necessarily produce the that results. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we do it is because that's how we've always done it. Well, why? Well, I don't know, but that's how we've always done it. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really great point, Ed. And, you know, leaders are pretty consistent in their approach, regardless of whether it's private or public sector. And so really making sure that you're understanding. And I think that's where the, the, the psychology comes into place, right? Because humans are psychological beings. And so, it, you know, your experience really helps you to better understand them. Absolutely so. And, and I mean, again, that's the whole person because I'll take, for example, you know, uh, a team building. Mm-hmm. And I have seen this both internally as, a, as an employee and externally as a consultant where someone comes in and they offer ideas and suggestions. You know, they gather a group together, typically the leaders together or even a larger group. Mm-hmm. Um, and they offer ideas and suggestions and innovations but then they leave. And then that does not typically produce the desired result yeah. because the one and done sort of a way of doing it, it, it's great to plant a seed. And I believe that part of our job is always with individuals, with groups, with organizations mm-hmm. is to plant a seed. And we never fully know a person's readiness yeah. state. Yeah. And their readiness state is really important. So it's not to say that going in and doing a presentation isn't valuable, but it really needs to have more uh, more follow up. Mm-hmm. If we hope for those roots to grow and and you know really uh, become stable and a part of the culture, because if not, you know they may go right back to doing whatever it was that the person was called in for to begin with. So it really is important that it it sort of is an evolution. And whether I'm working with individuals or I'm working with groups, my style is, is that I offer ideas and suggestions and then ask people to pilot those mm-hmm. things. Say, see how this mm-hmm. works. And then we come back together. And when we reconvene individually or as a group, I say, First of all, did you try it? <laughs> and sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And, and if, if you actually tried it, what was the result? Mm-hmm. And if the result was good, okay, maybe we want to repeat mm-hmm. that. If the result did not produce the outcome, which is really what we're looking at is, you know, did it produce the result you wanted? Okay, so let's fine tune that. Let's work on that. And so, you know, it, it takes, it's a process. And this is sometimes people expect magic results and and humans don't work that Mm -hmm. way. We don't, we can't just flip a switch and have somebody, you know, behave differently. It's an evolution. It takes time. Yeah. I I really appreciate what you're saying there in terms of it being an evolution. It takes time. I think one of the, the, the most important things about behavioral change is that it's a process, right? It's not a, it's not a prescribed medication. You take it once and you're done. It's a process. It's continuous. You have to be consistent at it. And there's going to be times when you do a good job and sometimes when you don't, you know, it's, it's not a, a straight line. It's, it's a process that, that has, you know, uh, times when you win and times when you don't. And so you need to be consistent and continuous on it to make it successful. So I really appreciate that. Ed, we can, we can go on and on, but I want to be respectful of time here. How do people get a hold of you if they want to uh, take get get a hold of your services or continue the conversation with you? So two best ways. Uh, one is by email, and that would be ed at 
shermanconsulting.org. Or the other one is by LinkedIn. And my username on LinkedIn is Dr. Ed Sherman. So I'd be very happy to connect with any of your audience members and find out what's going on with them and their organization and offer any help or assistance that I could. Excellent. And then, Ed, I always want to take advantage of the experts that we have come on the show. What's a tip or a suggestion that you have for, for businesses and for leaders out there in this time of age that we're in right now? So if the mantra for a real estate person is location, location, the mantra for a successful leader is communication, communication, Mm. communication. It is so important because I like to tell leaders if they're not communicating and if they're not ideally proactively communicating, which means they don't wait till somebody comes to tell them that there's a problem, mm-hmm. an issue, or a concern, but they are doing management by walking around yeah. and talking to their people and saying, how are you doing? What's going on? Please come and see me, so on and so forth. If they don't do that, they go at their peril mm-hmm. because I say they're flying blind. And what I mean by that is there are things that their people would tell them mm-hmm are going on before it overflows or erupts or turns into a crisis Mm -hmm. that they could head off or resolve. And the one thing that people oftentimes say, or I say the most common thing I hear is, I don't have the time. I'm too busy. And my response to that is universally the same, which is you don't have the time not to do Mm. it. Because if you wait until it becomes a crisis or an issue, that's going to take much more time and resources and effort to resolve than it would have been if you could have addressed it early on. So my suggestion is as difficult as it may be, and we know some conversations can be difficult, Mm -hmm. um, there's skills to help deal with that. But shying away from a problem or ignoring a problem is never going to produce a good solution and is oftentimes going to Uh, allow it to worsen. Mm -hmm. So communication, if there's only one thing I can say, that would be the most important in my mind. Yeah, I I can't agree more. I think communication is one of those foundational, absolutely foundational things that leaders have to be able to do and to do well, right? I think it's one of those things where you you think you've communicated enough, communicate some more, right? Because it's it's never enough. There's always more opportunities. And, And to what you're saying about the bad news, Bad news does not get better with time. So just saying, well, avoiding it, it doesn't make it better. You know, so absolutely agree with you. Communication is absolutely key. Well, Ed, thanks for coming to the show. I, again, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Well, thank you so much, Ernest. I, I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, Ed. And for our listeners, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.